Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome back once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Daniel Golden, we are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Not only welcome back to Proclaiming the One, but welcome back to corporate worship at Good Shepherd. It has been uh, many, many, many weeks since we've been able to uh, come together as the body of Christ in this place. And at the time of this recording, right now, we have uh, lifted our suspension on corporate worship following the uh, governor's new guidelines. We are limiting our corporate worship to 100 people for each of our three services, Sunday at 8 and 10.30, Wednesday at 6.30. Through the month of May, we're asking people to uh, restrict themselves to one worship service per uh, per week, to uh, give everybody an opportunity to come join. And we're asking that people would register their attendance ahead of time so we know who's uh, showing up. You can go to our church website, goodshepherdlincoln.org, and sign in for your desired service time. And uh, if you have any problems with that, just give the church office a call, and we'll get you signed up and get you registered. That's going very, very well at this point. Vicar, do you have any comments you want to talk about with regard to our schedule genius program thing that we're using no it's pretty easy to use just a couple steps just make sure that uh, on the second screen you go to there's a drop down box for the quantity but yeah as of this morning at goodshepherdlincoln.org it's right on the front page on top to sign up for services okay and we'll be doing that through the month of may and uh, hopefully as the uh, restrictions lessen and we get a little better grip on what's uh, going on at good shepherd we'll be able to open things up even farther with regard regard to the month of June and the rest of the summer. For our Proclaiming the One program today, we're going to be continuing our look at that upper room discourse of Jesus, and uh, today takes us to the sixth Sunday of Easter. Rogate, Rogate Sunday, the sixth Sunday of Easter. The gospel reading is John 16. We've been in John 16 a lot lately, haven't we? John 16 23 to 33. Vicar, take it away. Jesus said, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. 
Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Great, great line. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John sixteen thirty three. Great words for us. Uh, we don't want to start there, though. We want to come back and uh, start at the very beginning. Uh, Pastor, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. In that day. That is a phrase that is all throughout Scripture. I think back in the olden days when you were making a footnote and uh, you were going to refer to something that's pretty much everywhere, you would say pasim in your footnote uh, because that phrase in that day is uh, very, very frequent in Holy Scripture. Jesus here is talking uh, in this upper room discourse, and sometimes it's a little bit difficult to sort out if he's talking about his upcoming death and resurrection, if he's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, or if he's talking about his uh, return uh, on the last day. So when we see that phrase here in John sixteen twenty three to 33, in that day, what should we be thinking? Well, um that day has to do with, I would say, more than a specific day. It'd have to do with the day of the church or the time of the church, the existence of the church. So that'd be all the way from the resurrection forward and even to this day that we're living in now. Uh, and the truth is, is we ask God the Father through the name of Jesus Christ to provide for us, and that's exactly what he does. And we ask for mercy, and that's exactly what we're given. And we'll continue to receive those things from God all the way until the end of this world. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Um, that sounds like a pretty big promise from God. I don't know. Um, if, I, if I ask for a uh, million dollars in my bank account, does that mean when I uh, go online and check that it'll be there? Uh, obviously not. So... What is Jesus teaching us, A, about prayer, asking of the Father, and B, this relationship between the Father and the Son, which seems to be the primary teaching in this entire section? Well, um, the truth is is that prayer isn't... Um, we. we we can ask God for things that he doesn't promise, but God won't give the things that he doesn't promise. God only gives what he promises, and that's to provide for our daily needs of body and soul, to give us the faith and to call us into it, uh, and to forgive our sins through Jesus Christ. And so, you know, the prayer, uh, 
dear Lord, please let me win the lottery and have a million dollars in my bank account, isn't a good prayer because that's not something God has promised. And because it's not something God has promised in his word or um, uh, in uh, the Holy Scriptures, then we're using the name of Jesus wrongly and violating the second commandment. And that's why that prayer doesn't get answered for us. As to the relationship between the Father and the Son, we know that they are both parts of the Holy Trinity, uh, along with the Holy Spirit, and that they work together uh, outwardly. Uh, And so that's where that issue comes in. When God's not promising something, we can't use Jesus' name to get what we want for our sinful selves uh, outside of the word and promise of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, until now you have asked nothing in my name, uh, Jesus has taught them to pray. We have this recorded for us in uh, in the Gospels. Uh, we know that the disciples prayed. Until this time, you have asked nothing in my name. What is Jesus teaching us here about what it means to pray in the name of Jesus? Apparently, it has something to do with what's coming up. Uh, you know, these words are spoken by Jesus on Monday, Thursday. Apparently, this has something to do with maybe a fuller understanding of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. How do we sort that out, Pastor? Well, um, yeah, what the things that God promises are all given to us through Jesus Christ, and that is all accomplished for us by the death and resurrection of Jesus on Good Friday and on Easter. And so when we are using the name of Jesus correctly, uh, we're using that name to receive the things that are promised through that death and resurrection, forgiveness, life, and salvation, for example. And this is the point I was making earlier, the prayer for winning the lottery is outside of the promises of God. It's not something that he... Um, has promised to give to everyone. And even if he did, it would, I mean, that veiled communist sort of idea would be uh, wrong because uh, it wouldn't mean anything if we all had the same amount of everything. So what God is giving here is forgiveness, life, and salvation. That's accomplished through Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection. And when we talk to God using the name of Jesus, those are the things we can expect to ask for and receive. And when we go beyond those things, that's where we're outside of what God actually promises. If someone asked you today, Pastor, what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? I think sometimes people just kind of stick the name of Jesus on a prayer and think they are praying in the name of Jesus. It certainly means more than that, right? It does. And, you know, that's where we go to the the catechism and we think about, um, you know, what is the name of Jesus? Well, we know that it involves using uh, God's word rightly uh, when we uh, preach God's word and its truth and purity when we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie or deceive, but call upon God in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. That's the way we use God's name appropriately. And that's why I'm saying when we ask for things outside of that, God doesn't, he's not required to give us those things. Might you win the lottery if you pray that way? Sure, but not guaranteed promise from God because it's outside of the doctrine of the church and the teaching of salvation that the church has always taught. One more thing that I want to press you on this, um, to pray in the name of Jesus does not just simply mean knowing what God says is an appropriate prayer and tacking Jesus on the name. What does it say also about faith 
in who Jesus is and what Jesus did? Well, um, it says that our faith is that Christ is the Savior who won salvation for us, and that's the very thing that he desires to give. And so um, that faith can be sustained throughout our lifetimes as we face troubles. Uh, God promises to take care of us uh, throughout all the challenges in our world, and that's what we pray for. And so um, these things that are given in the name of Jesus reflect the faith that believes his word is true and for us, and that uh, it will give us exactly what it promises. And that's, that's the faith of the church and always has been. Let me, let me ask it even more bluntly. Are the prayers of people who do not believe in Jesus heard by God? No. Okay. So to pray in the name of Jesus means to pray with a faith that there is one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for forgiveness, life, and salvation for all people, that the benefits of Good Friday and Easter are delivered through word and sacrament, and that by grace through faith, my sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Now, all of these other things you talked about are right on and spot on, but I think sometimes people have the false impression, you know, like the atheist in the foxhole kind of a thing. And sometimes people get the false impression that uh, if you throw enough up on the wall, something might stick. Unbelievers have no promise that God can or hear, can or will answer their prayer. But believers do have that promise. And that's why on this Rogate Sunday, when we're talking about prayer and making our petitions known to God, uh, Rogate is sometimes defined as litany. And we, uh, we've been praying the litany a lot during this pandemic and, and uh, Lenten time. And so, oh, sadly, we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to take a little bit more of a look at the gospel reading for the sixth Sunday of Easter, John 16, 23 to 33. Don't change that dial. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the sixth Sunday of Easter. The gospel reading, John 16, 23 to 33. Vicar, you want to read those words again, get them fresh in our brain. Jesus said, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. 
because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. All right, there you have the gospel reading for the sixth Sunday of Easter, John sixteen twenty three to 33. In our earlier segment, we talked about prayer in general, uh, what is appropriate prayer, who we pray to, uh, what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. In the end of verse 24 there, Pastor, it says, uh, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What is Jesus talking about here when he's talking about this fullness of joy? Well, it's the joy that comes from the promise of the resurrection and eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And when we ask for the things that God promises in his word, just like uh, we were talking about the first segment, uh, that joy is the thing that God gives to us as a byproduct of forgiveness, life, and salvation. Uh, It's the peace that comes from reconciliation through God's word, uh, through Jesus' blood covering all of our guilt and shame and um, uh, weaknesses. That's the joy that Jesus is talking about. And when we have forgiveness of sins free and clear, we also have the joy that comes with it. And that's the joy that nobody can take away from us uh, because Correct. it is a byproduct of saving faith. And when, uh, when Jesus gets down uh, toward the end of our text and he's talking about how he's never alone, uh, that's the same message for every Christian because whatever circumstance or situation or suffering you may be going through right now, Uh, The joy that comes from the forgiveness of sins is God's gift, and nobody, absolutely nobody, can take that away from you. Pastor, in verse 27, uh, Jesus says some words that are sometimes pitted against other clear words of Scripture, so we we need to unpack this just a little bit. Jesus says, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. In other parts of Scripture especially in 1 John, we see we love because he first loved us. Is this a contradiction here, or is Jesus teaching something else uh, in this particular section of the Upper Room Discourse? I don't think they're a contradiction. I think they actually go together. Um, While we were still yet sinners, God loved us, and the love is shown by Jesus coming uh, into this world and suffering and bleeding and dying, rising from the dead. And at the same time, uh, we who believe in him are also loved by God uh, because we have received the faith that God has given to us, the faith that looks to Jesus. And you can even see the way this is written. The Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have faith, or as it says here, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The faith that we have um, is the thing that receives God's love and also um, 
is the byproduct or the action that follows our faith as well. And so both of these things are true at the same time, and we can't pit them against each other. And uh, when when God Jesus says here, the Father loves you because you have faith, um, faith is a gift that he has given to us. And so uh, it's not a contradiction. It's just looking from a different perspective at uh, this relationship that Jesus has with the Father and that the Father through Jesus has with us. Jesus says in verse uh, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world. What is he referring to, Vicar, when he says, I came from the Father and have come into the world? Uh, this is the glory of his incarnation, when he, the humiliation of of Christ as he comes from the Father. And it's interesting, actually, in the Greek, it's more than just I came from the Father. It's I literally came out of the midst of the Father. I am part of God. I am God himself and came into the world in the incarnation. And this is uh, emphasized especially in the Gospel of John. Uh, at the very very beginning of John, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, 14, uh, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacled among us. And so the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, this, this teaching of the miracle and mystery of the incarnation is everywhere. And so Jesus is referring to that here. And then he says, uh, and, I am, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Pastor, uh, what is Jesus referring to here? You know, earlier he talks about the incarnation. What's he talking about when he's talking about leaving the world and going to the Father? His exodus, or at least that's how he describes it when he speaks to Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is, of course, pointing us to the cross and the passion and the ascension after the resurrection. These things where Jesus returns to the Father. Uh, I think the um, the great Ambrose, I think it's Ambrose hymn, um, uh, from Christmas time, you know, Savior of the nations come, uh, where it says, back to God, he ran his course. That's the thing that's being talked about here, and that includes the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. And we uh, we have the ascension, the celebration of the ascension coming up very shortly in our church here, and uh, it's often an afterthought, but uh, it is very, very prominently taught in Scripture, and we'll have time to talk it about used, that. It used to be a day where you'd get the whole day off of work, and you'd have a, a vigil for Ascension Day as well at church. So the night before, you'd stay up all night at church worshiping, and you'd have the whole day of Ascension off to uh, celebrate that Ascension as well. It's too bad we don't have that anymore. Well, when you're elected president, you can declare that by executive order a national holiday. There we go. Um, Adam Moline, 2032. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So then then follows in our text, the, the disciples kind of show off. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we understand completely what you mean, Jesus. You used to talk figuratively. Now you're talking uh, plainly. We believe that you came from the Father. And in verse 31, uh, Jesus uh, chides them, maybe even chastises them. He says, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Vicar, uh, are those words figurative, or did those words actually 
become fulfilled. Yeah, they materialized. Um, they had a, a fear of dying. They saw Jesus be arrested, beaten, lashed, and nailed to a cross. So they thought that was coming for them too. And um, their love for Jesus wasn't as, their belief in Jesus wasn't as strong as they claim it to be right here because they ran. They ran Yeah, they, they ski-daddled, and most of them didn't even see Jesus nailed to the cross because they were hiding at this point in time. But, uh, yeah, Jesus, what Jesus says here is going to be fulfilled in just a matter of hours with regard to the disciples. And, uh, Pastor, Jesus says, uh, you know, to the disciples, you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone. Yet I am not alone. Then he explains further, for the Father is with me. How is that a statement of the relationship between the Father and the Son and also a comfort for every Christian? Well, um, it's a statement of the Trinity because, as we know, there's one God and three persons, three persons and one God, neither dividing the substance nor confusing the persons. And that's the, uh, you know, I don't know, scholarly explanation of the scripture that we've come up with at all the uh, ecumenical councils of the ancient church. Um, And so that's just a reality. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God, and uh, that's always the case. There's a little bit more to it in the mystery of the uh, crucifixion as well, but I don't know we want to get into that uh, right now in this little bit of time. Uh, It's a comfort to us because the same is true for us as well. No matter where we are, no matter how alone we think we are, the... um, the, uh, God is with us. And I don't want to make it sound like, you know, um, the shack or anything like that. That's a little bit uh, uh, cheesy in its understanding, but th- it is the truth, right? Uh, God is there with us and he, in his word and in his sacrament, uh, and he's there with us as we face all the challenges uh, and and struggles of this world. And so that's a thing we need to remember, uh, and hopefully your pastors and uh, your scripture readings always remind you of that as well. We are not alone because Christ is with us, not in some sort of esoteric way, but he is with us really, tangibly. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Pastor, in two sentences or less, when Jesus says that in him we have peace, what does that mean? Run-on sentences? <laughs> no. Um, it means that um, in the forgiveness of sins, one on Calvary's cross, there is no longer any conflict between us and God. Beautiful. Uh, when you hear the word peace, when you read the word peace in Scripture, when you sing the word peace out of it in a hymn, when you hear the word peace in the liturgy at church, think forgiveness of sins. This is not some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart that maybe you have it, maybe you don't. Or just ignoring conflict or, you know, other things that we try to do. That's exactly right. Uh, You know, you ignore it and hope it goes away. No, peace is the forgiveness of sins. And this is the peace that the world cannot give, but is God's gift to you. Pastor, I'm saving the best for last. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What do you think? Uh, my, um, the thing that really brings this to mind uh, for me is the uh, Passion of the Christ movie by Mel, Gro- by, not Mel, Mel Brooks, no. Mel Gibson. I've uh, <laughs> got to get my Mel's straight here. Mel, Mel uh, Gibson, where Jesus is carrying the cross out to uh, Golgotha, and he runs past his mom, 
Uh, and he says, look, Mom, I'm making the world new. Uh, by the cross, by his blood, by his death, everything is being in this world that sin, death, and the, the, the power of the devil here, he's overcoming them, destroying them, conquering them, defeating them, so that instead we can have peace, comfort, life, and salvation by his action. The world is a mess right now, full of fear and panic and worry and uh, dissension. Jesus has overcome all that by his perfect life, bloody death, and glorious resurrection. Rejoice. Rejoice in Jesus. We need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at one of my favorite all-time Old Testament stories, uh, True Account, Numbers 21, 4-9. Don't change that dial. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thanks for tuning in. Each week we take a look at the upcoming readings. Today we're looking at the readings for the sixth Sunday of Easter. This brings us in our third segment here to the Old Testament reading for Easter 6, Rogate Sunday. Numbers 21, 4 to 9, and I need to make a, just a little bit of a confession here before, uh, before we have Vicar read these words. You know, earlier when we've been in uh, Genesis 18, I've made the comment that um, uh, I think an objective look at Luther would say that he preached on that Old Testament text, the near sacrifice of Isaac uh, by Abraham and uh, God sending an angel to keep the sword from it, that Luther preached on that text more than any other Old Testament text. And I think a close second is this text from Numbers 21. And personally, I, I have probably preached on this text as much as any text that, I, that shows up in the lectionary. I have preached on this text at numerous installations and ordinations, and also the first sermon that I ever preached here at Good Shepherd way, 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 way back in April of 1997 was on this text. Isn't that something? Yeah, yeah, boy. Long time ago. So so this one holds a special place in my heart. Vicar, Numbers 21, 4 to 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay, there you have it. Uh, I think this is a favorite in uh, Sunday school. This is uh, certainly a favorite of Pastor Poppy. Um, Pastor, can you give us a little bit of a geography lesson here? Because there's a reason why the people were ticked off. They were impatient because they wanted to take a direct route to where they were going. But they went around the land of Edom. What, why is that significant? And it just kind of escapes most people when they read this section. Well, um, it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, geography lesson, and especially I think it has big implications because um, King Herod is actually from the, the country of Edom, uh, the one who, Herod the Great and whatnot. He's an Edomian, which is Edomite. That's the Greek way of saying it. So if you have... Um, in your mind, a map of the Holy Land with the Mediterranean on the left and uh, the uh, Sea of Galilee and the top and the Dead Sea at the bottom, and then you have the Jordan River connecting the two. Uh, along the right side of the Jordan River, the east side, if you will, you have a couple different little nations that uh, stake out little claims uh, along that area. First, you have uh, the Amorites, and then uh, by the Dead Sea on the southern side, you have uh, the Moabites. And then south of there, uh, there's a little river that begins in the desert and ends in the desert. It doesn't ever make it to a sea. It all evaporates, but it's the Brook of Zered. And um, just to the south of the Brook of Zered, between that and the... um, um, the Gulf of the Red Sea, you have what is known as the nation of Edom. And so it's to the south and the east of where Israel will one day be. Now, uh, Edom, um, I want to make sure I say this correctly, Edom is a nation that is descended from Esau. Uh, And so you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, where uh, Esau is born first of the two twins, but Jacob steals his birthright. And What that all has to do, the birthright is the lineage of Jesus is coming through one of those two guys, and Jacob steals it from uh, Esau and inherits the promise, inherits the land. All these things are going to come through him now, and there's conflict then between Edom uh, and uh, Esau and Jacob that uh, comes about. So that's that's the land, and instead of going through that, God sends them around the southern edge. They're going to come up through Moab, and they're going to uh, cross the Jordan River uh, north of the Dead Sea instead of just going straight up north as they could through the land of Edom into the promised land without going through Moab. It would be like saying, uh, (laughs) I want to go to uh, Rapid City, or no, I want to go to Norman, Oklahoma. Well, I'll go south instead of north. I want to go to Norman, (laughs) Oklahoma, but I'm not going to step foot inside of Kansas. Right. So I've got to go all the way around, either to the east or to the west, and loop in instead of going to, and people would say, that's nuts. Why in the world would you do that? Well, I'm not going to step foot in the land of Kansas. People here, God directed them through Moses. They're not going to step foot on the in the land of Edom for the reasons why uh, Pastor talked about. It's, it's interesting because I think there are a lot of interesting 
connections that one can make with the land of Edom, the land of Moab. Moab, of course, is descended from um, Lot, who was rescued from um, Sodom and Gomorrah when it was destroyed. Why? Why was Lot rescued? Well, also, we have a Moabitess in the lineage of Jesus, and, and so we have all these connections to Jesus' line, and, and so God is knowing these things and working everything so that Christ will be born at the right time through the right lineage, etc. And uh, that that uh, it's not indispensable to this text, but it is very, very helpful in setting the stage for what's going on. So the people were mad because they had to take the long way around, and they became impatient on the way, and they started whining and complaining. But it's interesting. They didn't whine and complain about taking the long way around. Um, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And then they specifically say, for there is no food and no water, And then they contradict themselves and say, and we loathe this worthless food. Vicar, um, were their criticisms fair by saying they had no food or water? Well, what they, I suppose, meant to say is there's no food that we want. There's no water that we want. Good food, good water. And in their eyes, the food that was given to them by God was worthless. Yes, uh, the food that they were given was perfect food because it was manna from heaven. The water that they were given was perfect water because it came from the rock, and we know that rock was Christ. Uh, they loathe. I mean, it's you know, it's something to dislike something. So it's one thing to dislike something. It's another thing to hate something. It's a whole new level to loathe something. That is as low down as it gets. Um, Pastor, how does God react to their loathing and their complaining. It seems a little bit extreme. Well, I mean, it maybe seems extreme, and we might look at it in the miraculous nature of it and think, oh, boy, we have kind of a vengeful God. In fact, you hear lots of uh, people, modern scholars, say those things, that the Old Testament God is a vengeful, temperamental sort of guy. But what God does is he sends serpents uh, to teach the people how much they need the real God, the loving God, so that they don't despise the good gifts that they have. God does this in all sorts of ways, even to this very day, right? Uh, We're facing pandemic, right? What is this doing? Well, it's teaching us how much we need God's care and compassion and love and how the things that we had before that we received from God that we took for granted, how how much of a blessing they really were. And so that's what God does here. He sends serpents uh, that bite the people, and even some of them die as a result. Um, And this is to teach them, look, you're going to complain about the good things that you have, then you won't get those good things anymore. (laughs) Instead, you have this bad thing that's happening. Wasn't the good stuff better? Um, And this is what sinful people do, right? We always want more. The millionaire wants two million. Uh, the two millionaire wants ten million. Uh, we always want more, and yet God gives us all that we need to support this body and life. We ought to rejoice and be thankful for what He gives. The fiery serpents are really a call to repentance. They are. And uh, if you if you think of that scene in uh, the first Indiana Jones movie where uh, Indiana is thrown into the pit uh, with the uh, poisonous asps. That's uh, kind of kind of the uh, figure that I have in my brain here when I'm thinking about this. So the people, they repent. We've sinned against God and against Moses. Um, 
they ask Moses to be their go-between. Take the poisonous asps away. Take the fiery serpents away. That is, they confess their sins. Please take this problem away. That is a fair and legitimate prayer for the people. What is uh, so shocking is God's response. God hears their prayer. And then God tells Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Pastor, the people prayed, take away the fiery serpents. But he doesn't. What's happening here? Well, uh, he's teaching us about our Lord Jesus Christ um, in you know, I think the probably overly quoted verse from John 3.16 teaches us this, where when the people are complaining, God put a fiery serpent on a pole that all who look to it may live. And just in the same way, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, uh, nailed him up on a cross so that all who had faith in Jesus might live. Um, and so this is the parallel, and God's setting it up for later. But he's teaching them that our faith Well, he's teaching us our faith is the same as those people back then, but he's also teaching them to look to the promise to the Savior that is to come. And faith in that Savior is how you're going to be saved, uh, both from the fiery serpents or from Satan and his uh, uh, demons that work on his side, and also from sin and given eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's what the the takeaway is of this. Make a parallel now to the uh, coronavirus pandemic that is afflicting our country and our world. Uh, The children of God cry out to God. We have sinned against you and against our neighbor. Please take this pandemic away. Yeah. What's the solution, right? I mean, It's easy for us to think, man, we're going to die from coronavirus. We're going to get sick. We're going to die from this virus that's going to kill us. Then our life will be over. But the truth is we're going to die one way or the other anyways. And uh, whether it's coronavirus now or cancer in 30 years, uh, we're going to die. What's the only solution for both things? God so loved the world that he lifted Jesus up on the cross so that in his death we might be forgiven and that in his resurrection we might be certain that we will live forever and be resurrected from death. And so that's the parallel. God saves us all, no matter what the circumstances, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is, uh, I'm I'm glad you brought that connection to John chapter 3. We're quick to quote verse 16, but we don't often look at the verses before that. And it's a parallel construction in the Greek, right? The words are the same, the verbs are the same, except in one you have a a serpent on a pole and the other one you have Jesus on a cross. And so it's making this Old Testament text uh, actually about Christ coming later rather than just the the overquoted part of it. Well said. We need to take a break. This is Proclaiming the One. We'll be right back. Don't change that dial.
Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We'd love to have you join us for worship. Our corporate worship services are back at Good Shepherd. We're limiting attendance to 100 people per service. Sunday morning, 8 and 10.30. Wednesday evening at 6.30. We're asking people through the month of May to uh, limit themselves to one service per week. You can go to our Good Shepherd Church website and sign up. We're requiring sign up ahead of time, goodshepherdlincoln.org. And uh, if you're uh, not able to or afraid to go out at this uh, present time, we'll continue, uh, as always, airing our broadcasts on KNNA LP 95.7 here in Lincoln. You can listen on our radio website, thecross957.org, and you can check out our YouTube channel, Good Shepherd Lutheran Church Media, and uh, either by audio or visual or in person. Please join us for worship, for God's gifts to you, delivering the crucified and resurrected Christ and the forgiveness, life, and salvation that only he can provide. Our epistle reading is James 1, 22 to 27. And be reminded that the epistle reading in the one-year series is often a practical application of everything that we have heard in all the other readings. Vicar, take it away. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Okay, we have a heavy dose of practical application in these words from James, and really the whole book of James is a book uh, that does not emphasize uh, as much as uh, the other 65 books of Scripture the doctrine of justification, that we are justified by grace through faith on account of the person and work of Jesus Christ, although there is a great verse in there, uh, James 1 verse 12, that does do that. Uh, But James is teaching Christians how to live, what the Christian life looks like. And we can only do that as a fruit of faith. This doesn't earn our favor with God, but because Christ has loved us, we in turn live our lives in love toward God and service toward our neighbor. Pastor, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. To hear the word of God and not do it, James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching us is a big deception. How is that a deception? Well, um, 
it's a deception, and this goes back to the words of Jesus, uh, which we have to understand James heard and saw firsthand. Uh, but we talk about a, a tree bearing fruit, right? A good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit or no fruit. And this is all talking about Christians. A Christian in the faith that has real Christian faith automatically bears good fruit or does good works or cares for the people around them or loves the people around them. A fake Christian or a non-believer, even if it looks like they're bearing fruit, the fruit is bad or no fruit at all. And this is all the reality that James is addressing in his entire book. And so when he says... um, Oh boy, I lost my place here. When he says, be doers, um, not just hearers, what he's saying is bear good fruit because that's what Christians actually do. He's saying, if you are a Christian, you will automatically be doing these sorts of things, living a Christian life. And we've talked about that on this show before as well in other episodes. And uh, in, a, in a sense, it's kind of a paraphrase of John, First John 1, chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us so we're talking here about the deception of saying that we're not sinners and there are some people that would go about saying i don't have to do good works i don't have to live a christian life i i know what the bible says i know what god's word says i i even go to church once in a while i hear the word of god that is a lie and james with this harsh law is exposing that lie then he then he uses this uh, kind of a silly little example uh with regard to you know you you look in the mirror not because you forgot what you look like, but to see what things need to be adjusted or fixed. And then when you walk away, you don't forget what you look like. He's talking about the mirror of the law. What I want to ask you about, Pastor, it says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I think that is a very, very powerful and important word uh, uh, verse of scripture for us what is the perfect law and how is the perfect law a law of freedom or a law of liberty well um kind of a complicated thing the perfect law the law of liberty the law of freedom is the law that is fulfilled already in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. Bingo, bingo, bingo. Uh, if you if you were thinking that the perfect law is the Ten Commandments and that the law of liberty is if I try really hard to follow the Ten Commandments, I'll be at ease or at peace, uh, you fell into the trap. The perfect law is the law, the Ten Commandments, fulfilled by Jesus. Which is why it's perfect. Which is why it's perfect, and that is the only way the law can be freedom for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, now go on with that whole freedom uh, explanation that you were giving. I cut you off. Yeah, um, so Jesus fulfills the law by his life, death, and resurrection, doing what we have been unable to do. 
And now in the waters of holy baptism, we are clothed in that righteousness, in that perfection, so that when God looks at us, you know, when God looks at Pastor Poppy, he doesn't see all of his shortcomings or uh, his uh, failures or his, uh, you know, cloud of cigar smoke obscuring him or whatever. Instead, when he looks at Pastor Poppy, he sees Jesus and Jesus' perfection, the robe of righteousness that covers all of his guilt uh, and weaknesses. And so God looks at him and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And when God works through Pastor Poppy then to care for someone in need, um, it's really Jesus that's doing that in, in, in him and through him, and in that way, God is well-pleased with Pastor Poppy and with all sinners as well. That is the only way we can truly do good works. They Correct. are works that flow from faith, and we can trust that when we are following God's word in faith, that God will bless that work. Let's, uh, let me use Vicar as an example. Let's say that uh, Vicar is uh, a little bit short and impatient, uh, maybe because he's tired or crabby or stubbed his toe or whatever. So he goes home after a tough day at work and his daughter wants some time with him and he doesn't really feel like it. He wants to uh, grab the remote control and sit in front of the TV. When he dies to that sin of selfishness and lives in his vocation as father, and loves his daughter the way she deserves to be loved by her father, God will bless that. God's promise of blessing is there. It doesn't matter about your motive. It doesn't matter about if you were feeling really, really like a father that day. God blesses the works of a Christian, no matter how imperfect they are. They are blessed and perfected in and through the blood of Jesus Christ. Pastor, yep. uh, are, are, uh, is that a fair way of uh, explaining what we're talking about here? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, like I said, it's even to say they're perfected, it's not an uh, ongoing um, progressive sanctification thing. It's the reality of the perfection of Jesus makes the things that we do perfect for his sake, for what he's accomplished. James goes on, and uh, James does this a lot. James talks about a specific sin that plagues all Christians. Verse 26 of James chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious and, not bri and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Pastor... You've been, uh, you've been teaching the book of James uh, pre-pandemic in our uh, Lifelight Bible study. Why? And later on, I believe it's in chapter 3, he talks about how the tongue is like a rudder on a ship, tiny little thing that controls the giant boat. Um, why does James spend seemingly an inordinate amount of time talking about sins of the tongue? Well, um, the people that James is writing to it must have been something they were dealing with. And uh, it does, makes sense. It's the same thing we deal with, right? Um, people gossiping, uh, people 
cursing, swearing, use satanic arts with their tongue, uh, teaching false doctrine. Uh, Luther says that's the worst way that we um, use satanic arts or, or lie or deceive by God's name. These sorts of things that are uh, the things the tongue does and accomplishes, um, those were the problems that they were facing. So um, because that was the issue, he is addressing it directly as a good pastor should instead of just letting it uh, uh, sneak by or be ignored or avoided. And so um, James is addressing those people who are using their tongues to speak bad words directly. I think uh, Christians that are uh, listening to this program need to, at this point in time, do a very, very serious and thorough diagnostic examination of their speech, what they are doing with their mouth, their tongues, and their words. How do you talk to your spouse? How do you talk to your parents or your children? How do you talk to your coworkers or your uh, boss or employees? How do you talk to your neighbors? How do you talk when nobody is around? This is a diagnostic question because we act as if it doesn't matter what we say. And God's word is very, very clear. Sins of the tongue are damnable sins whether it is gossip, whether it is coarse joking, whether it is hurtful language, whether it is selfish talk that only thinks of yourself, God's word says stop it. Stop it. And the only thing that can cleanse a potty mouth, the only thing that can turn our tongue into an instrument of blessing and praise to God is the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus. Repentance and forgiveness in Jesus' name. God calls Christians to love God and to serve our neighbor. That is only possible in and through Jesus. God will sanctify our speech. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Sadly, we got to bring this to a close. Um, Vicar, we're not going to have time for the colic today. I'm sorry, but uh, we'll do it twice next time. How's that sound? Sounds great. Okay. Um, thanks for joining us Sunday morning when you get up. Read your paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastor. Online or in person, go to church. God's richest blessings in Christ.